Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. Colossians is one of Paul's letters. It's a short one, but it's a powerful one. And we're going to be looking at Colossians over the next couple of months. If you're looking in the New Testament, it goes Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, G-E-P-C. Those are sort of in the middle of Paul's um, middle-sized or smaller letters. Uh, Paul's letters are organized from longest to shortest in our Bibles. Uh, So Colossians, I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. And I'm going to spend some time this morning just introducing us to the book as a whole and then looking into verses 1 to 8, the beginning of the book. So let me read these verses for us. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that, uh, thank you that it's been preserved for us over the generations, that we can read it in our own language. Lord, we pray that your Spirit would give us understanding. We pray that you would uh, enliven our hearts to respond to you as you desire us to today. In Jesus' name. Amen. So in 1939, as political tensions throughout Europe were rising and World War II was uh, looming, the British government began considering how to, what they would want to communicate to the general public if war were to break out involving their nation. How would they reassure people in a time of great upheaval? How would they mobilize people to support the war effort at great cost to themselves. After much debate, they decided on a series of three public service messages. One read, freedom is in peril, defend it with all your might. Another read, your courage, your cheerfulness, your resolution will bring us victory. And a third read simply, keep calm and carry on. Now for various reasons, uh, most of the, they, so they printed millions of these posters. They printed about three or four million total of these posters, planned to post them all around the country. And uh, they posted some of them, uh, but most of the Keep Common Perry, Carry On posters were never actually used. Uh, they were just put away in storage. People thought, because uh, the concern was people are too um, sort of laid back and they wanted to mobilize people more, and they thought telling people to keep calm is not going to be helpful. Um, So then a year later, the nation was facing a paper shortage, and they recycled them all. So 60 years later, in 2000, there's an old bookseller who finds one of these old posters, Keep Calm and Carry On, and he says, oh, this is an interesting one. I bet people might, this might go for sale, and he starts copying it. 
and printing it. And over the last 20 years, it's sort of gone throughout the world. And many people have resonated with this slogan in times of anxiety and upheaval, in times of confusion and conflict. Uh, I remember particularly around the beginning of the pandemic, there, you know, that, that appeared, right? Keep calm and carry on. Uh, and that's a message that would have resonated with the Christians that Paul was writing to in the ancient city of Colossae. They were experiencing anxiety, upheaval, conflict, confusion. Let me set the stage a little bit of sort of what their life was like, what their city was like, and what their church was like. So for one thing, this was a group of people who were relatively new Christian believers. So the church, uh, when Paul wrote this letter, the church in Colossae had existed for at most five or six years. And so the church wasn't an established institution in that society that everyone knew about and respected. They weren't just carrying on the same religious traditions that their parents and grandparents had handed down to them. They were launching out in a new direction of following Jesus together. They were navigating uncharted waters, facing new challenges. And so Colossians speaks to us, whether if you're starting out in your journey with Christ, or if you feel like we're sort of facing new challenges as a community of believers. Uh, uh, so that's one factor. They were relatively new Christian believers. They were facing new challenges and opportunities. But also, second, their city, which had once been very famous and prominent, was now in decline. So in centuries past, back in the fourth and third centuries BC, Colossae had been the center of a thriving textile industry. It's like many cities in Connecticut, or many villages in Connecticut, including this one, uh, that grew up around mills, right? A thriving textile industry for many years. Um, but, and Colossae had been famous for its high quality dark red wool. It was known as Colossian wool. Uh, so the city had a proud history, but over the last century or two, it had declined economically and in population. So there were two other cities that were founded in the same river valley. Uh, one is called Laodicea, which you might have heard of, because uh, there's a letter in the book of Revelation to the church in Laodicea. That was 12 miles west of Colossae. And another was called Hierapolis, uh, about 15 miles northwest of Colossae. So both of these cities had been founded after Colossae, and both of them grew larger and more influential, and Colossae became the sort of small, declining, less important, less prominent city. In fact, there used to be uh, an east-west road and a north-south road that intersected in Colossae. It used to be sort of a, a crossroads, but they moved the east-west road, so it went through one of these other cities. So again, Colossae was sort of cut off from some of the traffic. Uh, there was still quite a bit of east-west traffic, but uh, one scholar says Colossae was the least important city to which any epistle of Paul was addressed. But isn't that an interesting uh, observation when you think about it? Because this book shows us that God is not only interested in large, growing, prominent cities, God also cares about sending his word to places that have experienced economic decline or smaller towns. God cares about all kinds of places. And uh, Coloss Colossians reminds us of that. So the Colossians were new Christians living in a declining city, and third, they were surrounded by competing spiritual influences and claims. So uh, they were located on East-West Road, so travelers from throughout the Roman Empire would come through 
and share their religious and philosophical ideas. There was a substantial Jewish community that existed in that area for a long time. We don't know exactly how big it was in Paul's time. And there were also devotees of various Greek and Roman gods. Now, uh, Colossae, unlike many other ancient cities, has never been excavated by archaeologists. They're actually just starting, just this year. There's an archaeological dig that's starting uh, because right now Colossae's in ruins. Nobody lives there anymore. Uh, the, the city is, has not been inhabited for centuries. Uh, but they're just starting to dig, and so it'll be interesting to see what they learn. It might shed some light on uh, what it was like in Paul's time. Uh, but what we do know is that throughout the Roman Empire, people worshipped many different gods. And you might say, well, why did people worship so many different gods? Well, one reason was many people in the ancient world felt a deep sense of anxiety and insecurity. Life was hard. Life was often unfair. Life was unpredictable. It felt uncontrollable. And so people would latch on to whatever promised to bring them good health or good luck or pleasure or prosperity. Whether it was Zeus or Artemis or Athena or Aphrodite or anyone of among many different gods. And people sort of thought, well, maybe that'll help. And if this one doesn't help anymore, maybe a new one will help. So there was always sort of something new out on the religious market making claims uh, that it would offer you good luck, good health, prosperity, peace, whatever you might want. And so if, you're, if you were living in Colossae and your life wasn't going so well, maybe things were hard and painful, you might think maybe I'm missing out, maybe there's something else out there that I should try, some other religion or some other spirituality, maybe there's some other God who I need to appease or, or gain his or her favor. And in fact, some of the Christians in Colossae had begun feeling that anxiety as well, and confusion too. So when we get to chapter 2, what we'll see uh, is that some people had begun telling the Christians, sort of saying, you know, it's okay for you to worship Jesus. You know, okay, that's fine, but it's not necessarily enough. It's not necessarily going to be sufficient or satisfying. You need to try something else. You need to add some extra rules or some extra religious practices, some extra rituals to Jesus because you're missing out on something. And some of the Christians were starting to wonder, am I missing out on something? Right? They were just sort of absorbing the anxiety of their culture and wondering what would satisfy them. And if you look at Paul's main message to these new Christian believers living in a declining city, surrounded by competing spiritual practices and ideas, his main point is to urge them, keep calm and carry on in Christ. In other words, don't let anxiety and upheaval, conflict and confusion, don't let those things throw you off course. Don't run from one spiritual fad to another. All your spiritual needs can be satisfied in and through Jesus. Grow deeper in him and live into the fullness and the freedom that he offers. So I think Colossians speaks to us when we feel anxious, confused, when we feel upheaval, when we feel some of those same things that people would have felt back then in that city. The message of Colossians speaks to those same concerns today. Now, uh, the main verse in the book of Colossians, 
is found in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. It's sort of the right in the middle of the book. And it says this, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. You see the idea there? Keep calm and carry on in Christ. Continue in the same way you begun, by turning to Jesus and trusting in him as your Lord and as the Christ, the Messiah. So that's Paul's main message. In fact, the first half of the book leading up to that is sort of focused on how the Colossians had received Christ Jesus the Lord, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, and then the rest of the book is practical instruction about how to walk in him. So that's the heart of the book, and we'll sort of see that as we go along, but that's the main message of the book, and we might summarize it, keep calm and carry on in Christ. Now, for the rest of our time this morning, I want us to look at the beginning of the book, verses 1 to 8 of chapter 1. And these verses shows us, show us that we can keep calm and carry on in Christ by thanking God for what he's already done for us. That's where Paul begins. Thank God for what he's already done for you. So three things these verses invite us to thank God for. Number one, thank God for who we are in Christ. That's verses 1 and 2. Number two, thank God for how we've grown in Christ, verses 3 to 6. And number three, thank God for how we came to Christ, verse 7 and 8. So let's look at these three themes briefly. Uh, thank God for what he's done for us. First, thank God for who we are in Christ. Uh, that's the first thing Paul reminds them of in the first two verses in his greeting. Now, letters in the ancient world would normally begin by identifying the sender and the recipient. And so here... Verse 1 tells us the sender, Paul, who identified himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That word apostle means a delegate or a messenger or someone who's sent and who, who is sort of the authoritative messenger um, of the one who sent him. So Paul's not just writing his own opinions. He's not just making it up, whatever he feels that day. He's writing as an authoritative messenger of Jesus Christ the Lord. And you might wonder where was Paul writing from. Well, we know that he was in prison because if you look at the last verse of Colossians, he says, remember my chains. So Paul was in prison. Most likely this was when he was written when he was under house arrest in Rome. So the end of Acts describes Paul's situation being under house arrest in Rome. He was probably in an apartment in one of the buildings, one of the, one of the buildings in Rome and probably had a security guard that he might have been literally chained to, but he had a, quite a bit of freedom to receive visitors. He could receive pretty much as many visitors as he wanted and to write letters. And so he used that time. He was there for at least two years under house arrest, but he used that time quite fruitfully to visit with many people and encourage them and write letters, including this one and some others. Uh, Paul also mentions Timothy in verse 1. Timothy may have been Paul's secretary. Uh, Timothy may have written down, like actually transcribed, the, this letter, uh, because again, if you look at the last verse, Paul has sort of a signature at the end where he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, uh, which probably means that somebody else wrote the rest of the letter and Paul sort of puts his, uh, just like if somebody, you know, just like you sign a letter that might have been printed out, um, you sign it at the end, it's sort of like Paul's signature where he would write a sentence or two in his own hand at the end of the letter uh, giving his approval to everything that's in the letter. So even if Timothy was the one who actually wrote it down, Paul's saying, I approve of everything in this letter, 
and uh, this is, this is uh, from me. So that's the uh, sender. Now the recipient is in verse 2, the saints and faithful brothers. That word means brothers, refers to brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. Now those are not two different groups of people. It's not saints is one group and faithful brothers and sisters is the other group. These are two words referring to the same group of people. Uh, now in some church traditions, people think of saints as those godly, particularly godly people who have already died. And it's certainly valuable to honor and remember godly people who've gone before us. So that's certainly a valuable thing. But when the New Testament uses the word saints, it just means uh, every one of us who belongs to Jesus, living or dead. Um, and 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, Paul says, we are all called to be saints. In other words, that word saints means holy, God's holy people, uh, set apart for his purposes in the world. So uh, we are uh, holy and faithful brothers, believing members of God's family, brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, so uh, throughout the New Testament, the church is identified as the holy temple of God and the beloved family of God. In fact, Colossians 3 verse 12 puts those words together, holy and beloved. And that's really where Paul starts. The saints, the whole, what we're called to be holy, and brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, were beloved by the Lord. Uh, and then he says, in Christ, in Colossae. So their spiritual location and their geographical location. You see, God's put each of us in a particular place at a particular time. And this letter was written to the Christians in a particular place at a particular time in Colossae in the middle of the first century. So it's helpful to learn as much as we can about the specific context that Paul was writing to and some of the particular challenges they were facing. Uh, but as Christians, no matter what our geographical location is, we have the same spiritual location in Christ. Right? So it's writing, written to a particular context, but it's also written to those who are in Christ. And we too, if we've believed in Jesus, we're in Christ. And so the message of this letter is for us as well. Right? That's why we can be confident that this letter, written 2,000 years ago to a city that doesn't even exist anymore, has something to say to us today. Because just like they were in Christ, now we're in Christ and we can receive the message of this letter for us. We can receive Paul's greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father. That's not only Paul's wish for the Colossians back then, it's God's desire for each of us today that we'd be rooted in his grace and uh, sustained by his peace. So the first thing Paul reminds us is, thank God for who you are in Christ. Holy and believing brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, but that's not all we have to be thankful for. Second thing, Paul says, thank God for how you've grown in Christ. Now, in these verses, verses 3 to 6, uh, we learn an interesting fact. Uh, namely, Paul had never met these people that he was writing to. So Paul says, uh, verse 4, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. Um, and in verse 8, Paul tells us how they did hear from a man named Epaphras, who Paul did know. And Epaphras had traveled to where Paul was in prison and brought Paul a good report about the Colossian Christians. So Paul's writing to these people that he's never even met in person, just based on the report he's received from this guy named Epaphras. Uh, but he thanked God for how the Christians were growing in Christ 
He knew they were growing in Christ because he says, we heard of your faith, love, and hope. Verse 4 and 5. Faith, love, and, ho faith, love, and hope are fruits of the gospel. Verse 6, uh, or the end of verse 5 talks about the gospel. That just means the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus. That message, he says, has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. So the idea is that faith, love, and hope are fruits of the gospel, that is the message about Jesus, what God has done for us in Jesus, that uh, are growing and increasing in our lives. And if you um, look throughout the New Testament, there's about 10 places, mostly in Paul's letters, but also in the book of 1 Peter and the book of Hebrews, where faith, hope, and love are all together uh, in the same verse or the same uh, paragraph. They're sort of like a cord of three strands, right? Like, like a rope woven together uh, that connects us to Christ himself. One person put it this way, faith rests on what God has done in the past, love acts in the present, and hope looks to the future. So faith, hope, and love go together. Faith, we're trusting God, relying on him because of what he's done in the past. Love, we're living that out and how we treat one another uh, in the, uh, uh, today. And hope is we're looking forward to God's promises for the future and strengthened and energized by those. Uh, so uh, these, these faith, love, and hope appear together. Um, and in all the passages where they appear, faith is the foundation Love is the fulfillment, and hope is the sustainer. So let me explain that a little bit. So faith is the foundation of love and hope. So in all the places where it talks about faith, hope, and love, faith almost always comes first in the list um, because we're made right with God not by how much we love God or what we do for him, but just by trusting him, by relying on him. So it starts with faith. It starts with faith in Jesus. Uh, Paul puts that first, but love is the fulfillment or the outworking of faith and hope. So at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, uh, Paul wrote this, uh, Now these three abide, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So love is the fulfillment. Now, um, you might say, well, why would that be the case? Well, I think Paul's looking forward to when we'll see Jesus face to face. And I think his idea is this, when we see Jesus face to face, we won't need faith anymore because we'll have perfect knowledge, right? We won't have to trust someone who we haven't seen. We'll see him face to face and see him for who he is in glory. And we won't need hope anymore because hope is looking forward to something in the future that we haven't yet experienced, but God promises. We won't need hope anymore because we'll have the fulfillment of our hopes, but we will have love, right, in heaven forever. Love for God and love for each other. So Paul's saying love is the thing that's going to last forever, even beyond faith and hope. Faith and hope will get you, help get us there, but love is never going to end. That's why Paul says love never ends. Um, but in the meantime, so faith is the foundation, love is the fulfillment, but hope is the sustainer of faith and love. Again, you see how it's like a, a cord of three strands that are all woven together. Hope sustains faith and love. Here's the thing. Without hope in God and his promises for the future, our faith will tend to falter and our love will tend to grow cold. Because if we only look around at what we're experiencing in the present or what we've experienced in the past, 
it's very easy for us to become discouraged or cynical or just lose heart. And so hope in God's promises for the future sustains our faith and sustains our love in the present. Um, and that's what Paul emphasizes here in verse 5. If you look at that, faith in Christ Jesus, the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. He says you have faith and love because of the hope you have in Jesus. Because he is risen from the dead and he promises that he'll come back one, again someday and bring you to be with him and raise you from the dead too. Uh, later on, Paul talks about Christ in you is the hope of glory. So faith, hope, and love right, are indications of how the Colossians have grown in Christ. And Paul says, thank God for how you've grown in Christ. So let's just stop here for a moment. Can you thank God for how you or other people around you that you know or even other people that you've only heard of have grown in Christ? Can you thank God for, that, for those things? You know, sometimes I think it's hard to look at ourselves and sort of gauge our own spiritual growth because we tend to go one of two directions. We either tend to get puffed up with pride and think that we're much more mature than we really are, um, or we tend to get discouraged and conclude that we're not growing at all and we've never grown at all and we're never going to grow in the future. And, you know, depending on your personality, you'll probably tend to go one of those two ways, to be either very confident in how mature you are spiritually or completely lacking confidence and always thinking that you're a spiritual failure, right? So it's actually uh, helpful to start by looking outside ourselves, right? It's helpful to start not just by looking at our own spiritual growth. Um, you know, if you look, if you sit outside and you look at the grass growing, you're not going to you're never going to see it grow, right? But if you leave and come back a week later and it hasn't been mown, then you'll notice, boy, that grass really grew. The flowers really grew. That child that I haven't seen for a year is now four inches taller, right? Sometimes we can see growth outside of us better than we see it in ourselves, who we walk around, right? Because we walk around with ourselves every day, right? We can't escape that, right? So. Sometimes it's helpful to do what Paul does here and thank God for other people's growth in Christ. Um, so what might that look like? Thank God for the other Christians you know here at TCC and for how God has given them faith and hope and love. Can you look around, even right now, at somebody else in this room? And can you think, thank God for that person's faith and how they've persevered in faith through trials? Or thank God for the love that that person has shown to me or to someone else around them. And, and how uh, they've been such a blessing to other people because of the love that they show. Or thank God for the hope that this person has that, that, that they can keep on going and not despair. Right? So let me, let me encourage you. Thank God for somebody else or even for a bunch of other people who are right in this room here today. Right? When you pray this week, thank God for them. Thank God for one another, for the faith, hope, and love that you see. And if you do that in your prayer time, tell somebody else that you're thankful for them. Like Paul does here. Paul says, I thank God. We always thank God when we pray for you because we heard of your faith and hope and love. And so you can tell somebody else, 
I'm so thankful to the Lord for you, for bringing you into my life, for your example of faith, or for holding on to hope through, through some hard trials, or for the love that you've shown to me, or for the love that you show to other people in your life. That's a great way to encourage someone, is to tell them what you're thankful for about them, what you're thankful to God for about them. Um, and, uh, you know, it's interesting, Paul doesn't just start by praising the Colossians directly. He doesn't say, boy, you Colossians, you're amazing. You're such a great church. You've, uh, you know, you're certainly better than those uh, people in Corinth. They have all kinds of problems. If you ever read Corinthians, that church had all kinds of problems. No, Paul doesn't begin by praising them or comparing them to somebody else. Paul just says, Thank, Paul praises God for them, right? Doesn't compare them to others. Paul thanks God for them. And that's a good way for us uh, to encourage others is thank God for them and thank God for the growth that you see in their lives. And Paul even thanked God for these people that he had only heard about, right? So maybe there are other Christians, maybe in another part of the world, uh, maybe perhaps who are Maybe you get reports about Christians who are persecuted in other parts of the world. Those can be encouraging because those you can thank God for the faith and hope and love that they display, right? You can be encouraged and you can thank God for even Christians that you've never met not, or not yet met in person. So thank God for who we are in Christ. Thank God for how we've grown in Christ. And third, finally, thank God for how we came to Christ. Now, uh, verses 7 and 8 tell us how the Colossian Christians heard the message about Christ. They heard it from a man named Epaphras. Now, Epaphras is only mentioned in this letter. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. We don't have any other historical documents about him, but he's mentioned in these two verses, verses 7 and 8, and he's mentioned at the end of the letter in verse 12 uh, of chapter 4. So if you look at chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says... Uh, Paul gives us a clue about who Epaphras is. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus. And that probably means that Epaphras grew up in Colossae. He was a native of that city or a citizen of that city, right? Because he says, Epaphras, who's one of you, right? Uh, he, he, he grew up with you guys. But then... If you go back to chapter 1, verse 7, you learned the gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. So you think, well, somehow Epaphras grew up in Colossae, but Paul hadn't planted the church in Colossae. Paul hadn't gone there and preached. As far as we know, we have no record that he did. He doesn't even seem to know these people in, personally. So somehow, how did Epaphras get to know Paul? So Paul could say he's our beloved fellow servant. Well, okay, so if you read in the book of Acts, Acts 19 tells us that Paul spent three years in Ephesus. Now, the city of Ephesus was on the same road that went through Colossae, that east-west road. Ephesus was over near the coast. Colossae was much farther inland. It was about 120 miles away. But it was a commonly traveled road, and Paul was in Ephesus for three years, 52 to 55 A.D., roughly. Uh, so, most like... and, and um, uh, Acts chapter 19 says that while Paul was in Ephesus, all the residents of the Roman province of Asia, which was sort of, which is modern day Turkey, in, and that includes Colossae, 
Now, they were all in the same Roman province. All the residents of that promise heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So if we put this together, here's what probably happened. Epaphras grew up in Colossae. At some point, he traveled to Ephesus, where Paul was teaching and preaching for three years. And Paul rented a lecture hall, says he was in that lecture hall for two years. He would reason with people, answer questions, teach anyone who wanted to listen. So probably Epaphras went to Ephesus and learned the message from Paul, maybe stayed with him for a while to be trained, and then went back home and started preaching and planted the church. That's probably what happened for if we put all these pieces of evidence together. And Epaphras also uh, worked hard in chapter 4, verse 13, not only for the Christians in Colossae, but also for those two other cities in the same valley, those two other cities that had grown a little bit larger and more prominent, uh, Laodicea and Hierapolis. Uh, so isn't that pretty cool, right? This guy who grew up born and raised in Colossae goes to visit Ephesus, hears a message from Paul, goes right back home and plants a church there, and then plants a church in the other two cities close by, and then when, and he works hard to strengthen those churches, it says he was a prayer warrior, verse 12, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. And then when the church was going through uh, some challenges, Epaphras goes to visit Paul, probably to ask some advice, and that's where we get this letter. Right, because Epaphras gives Paul a good report, but he also tells Paul about these people who are sort of trying to provoke anxiety in the hearts of the Christians. And so Colossians, again, is written to encourage the believers in Christ. So that's who Epaphras was, but as we conclude this morning, think about who did you first hear about Christ from? The Colossians heard from Epaphras. But think about your own life story. Who did you hear and learn and understand about Christ? Maybe it was from your parents or your grandparents. For Timothy, it was his mom and his grandma, right, who taught him the scriptures. Um, or maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was uh, someone you met later in life. Uh, maybe it was uh, someone in your extended family. Maybe it was someone uh, in high school or in college, right? Think about the people that God has put in your life that you learned about Christ from. Maybe when you first heard, or maybe someone who really helped you grow in Christ. And let me challenge you this week, thank God for at least one of those people. You might even write them a letter, like Paul wrote to the Colossians, and say, I thank God for you, because God put you in my life however many years ago, it might have been, and I learned about Christ from you. Thank you. It was so encouraging. It's, it's, it, you, you have encouraged me, and, it's, and, and I want you to be encouraged because God has worked through you in my life. So let me challenge you to do that. Thank God for somebody here, and thank God for somebody uh, who taught you about Christ, because when we thank God for what he's done in the past, that helps us when we feel anxious, when we feel upheaval, when we feel confusion, that helps us to stay grounded and keep calm and carry on in Christ. So let's pray. Lord God, thank you for how you worked in the uh, hearts of the Christians in Colossae back then. And thank you, Lord, for how you are at work in our hearts and in our lives 
and in this community of believers and in other churches today. Lord, give us, um, give us a thankful heart, we pray. Help us, Lord, to reflect on who we are in Christ and how we've grown in Christ and how we've come to Christ and to reflect on, on, on that story for others around us, Lord, to thank God for the people you've put uh, even right here in this church, that we're brothers and sisters in Christ together and that we can thank you for how you've been faithful in the past, Lord. May that, uh, may that just draw us closer to you and encourage us uh, to keep following you in the present. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.